Welcome once again to another episode of Demand Gen Radio, the one program that brings you all the latest methods and technologies for driving growth and increasing demand. With the voice of Demand Gen, David Lewis. All right, well, welcome everybody to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. Today on the program, I've got Michael King. And if you know Michael King, then he's probably done something very special for you in your life because Michael is one of the Bay Area's and West Coast top recruiters. And he and I have, what is it, 440 or more mutual connections. So, Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me. I am very glad to have you on the program. We were just saying before we went on the air that uh, we were talking about baseball with the baseball season kicking off, and I was thinking in my head, you are a talent scout. I mean, that that's what you do for a living. But how did that happen, Michael? How did you get into recruiting? Well, it was uh, kind of one of those things, I guess, meant to be. It was uh, late 90s, looking for something new, and ran into an old golfing buddy at a golf course. And we started catching up and asked him what he was doing now, and he said he was a recruiter. And my first reaction was for the Army, for the Navy, because I'd, I'd never heard that before. I didn't know what a recruiter was. And he said he was recruiting for software companies in the Bay Area. And the next question was, are you making any money? And he said he was making over 100000 last year doing this. And I was like, okay, and talked more about it, gave me an intro to the two owners. And three months later, I gave it a shot in the late 90s, and it was, uh, at that time, it was very busy. So, uh, and it was all Bay Area startup companies, uh, variety of roles, and then, as we know, the dot bomb hit, and the company shut down, and then that's how I landed at uh, the Triad Group in 2001, end of 2001, and started doing the same thing, recruiting for companies in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And last September, decided to uh, go out on my own and start my own recruiting firm. Um, we'll get to how you like that, doing your own thing. But it's interesting that in the 90s, as you talk about, there was a big hiring boom. That, in 1991 is when I moved to the Bay Area, and I remember that. And it certainly feels like that boom all over again, uh, where people are, you know, looking for people, uh, seats are vacant, people hiring like crazy. We ourselves are looking, I think we have five open headcounts right now uh, for our team. And our uh, head of people operations came to me and said, I need to create more um, profiles on LinkedIn for the positions that we have open, which is a good, good sign of things. Um, How do you like doing your own thing compared to being uh, a member of a recruiting organization? Yeah, I mean, it has its pluses and minuses. Um, the commute, I love, you know, walking down the stairs sure. is my commute for the day, so I like that. You know, you do miss the interaction with, you know, your, your fellow employees. I do miss, you know, going out to lunch with some people and just the interaction. But um, overall, no, I, I love uh, being able to work from home. That's, it's awesome. I, I mentioned right when we were doing the intro that we have 400 plus, almost 500 mutual connections. 
And uh, I want to do a little name dropping because I think it's important for some of these folks to hear the companies that you've represented and, and the individuals that you've helped uh, place. I know Karen Steele, uh, for example, over at Lean Data. But who are some of the other folks that people might know of that tune into the program that you have uh, helped and companies you work for? Well, uh, the main one who kind of got me on the MarTech stack is is John Miller. I started working with John. I was introduced to John back in 2004 when he was over at Epiphany. And I helped him build out his team at Epiphany. And then in 2008 when, you know, he started Marketo with Phil, uh, they had some good funding coming in and he was ready to build the marketing team. And so I helped him with that. Um, I've worked with the ServiceMax, which was um, a lot of ex Success Factors people, and I worked with right. Success Factors very early on. They didn't even have an office yet, and I put in the first VP of Biz Dev Alliances over there, and then started working with them. Um, Demand Base again in the Martech stack, put in uh, people over there. Demand Gen Product Marketing, um, Lattice Engines, uh, VP of Marketing. Uh, Zinc, uh, Stacy Epstein's the uh, CEO over there. Again, worked with her at Success yeah. Factors. Worked with her over at ServiceMax, and end of last year, I put her CMO over at uh, Zinc. So now that you're focused a lot more in the Martech area, which is both not only on the vendor side, but you know, helping people fill their seats on their demand generation and marketing operations teams. Uh, I w- I'd like to share some some really start off with some really cool stuff that I think people are going to just pique their interest up very quickly on the program, which is let's talk about compensation, and then I want to talk about some of the new roles that we're seeing. So, talk to me a little bit about compensation today for heads of demand generation, maybe even CMOs and some of those key roles, so people can get an understanding, you know, what those salary ranges are looking like and what maybe total packages are looking like. Is I think that's yeah. good. That's some eye-opening stuff. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's interesting because, again, I focus on uh, Series A's, B's, C's. I have placed uh, CMOs at bigger companies, so, of course, the, the comp is going to be uh, bigger there. But I would say at the you know Series A, Series B, it can go anywhere from, uh, and it depends if a company is, wants to bring on a first-time VP. Yep. And a lot of the people that are getting those roles were previously running demand gen at companies because it is about revenue. When, you know, a Series A or B is looking for their first VP of marketing, head of marketing. Uh, so if it's a senior director of demand gen moving into a first-time VP role, uh, the comp base salary will probably be 200 to 215 ish. Depends if the company wants to do a bonus of 20, 25%. Some companies don't. They just give more options, and then the base can get up to maybe 220. Um, if it's a little bit more well funded, C or D, then you know we're moving up to 250, 260 base um, plus bonus. So um, the salaries are definitely increasing, um, and if we get even higher 
funding-wise, then we're up to over three, the 350 base. Which I'm excited to hear about because, as I've said on Demand Gen Radio on the programs before, trying to get more equality in sales and marketing, trying to see those compensation models for marketing get a strong variable component because if we're doing our jobs right in marketing, like you said, we're driving revenue. And shouldn't we paid commensurate with that role and all the work that is involved? So it's very encouraging to hear those numbers uh, certainly coming up and and certainly know that in a lot of those companies, there's an equity component as well, which, you know, uh, at the right company at the right time uh, can turn out to be a very positive uh, uplift. Right. And I've been pushing for the last few years to change the structure and trying to convince companies to give a higher bonus and structure that bonus uh, more on the sales side because, yes, they're driving revenue and they should be compensated that way. And then there's some candidates that would rather have the higher base salary. Right. So it, it goes both ways is um, I think the candidate that's really confident and knows that they're going to be able to come in and drive revenue, um, they're the ones that try to push for a higher bonus structure, knowing that um, they will succeed in the role. And most of the roles you're placing these days, Michael, is all director level and above, right? Director, yeah, director VPs, correct. And I and I positioned you as one of the West Coast, you know, uh, but I imagine actually that was the wrong positioning, right? Are you are you more than just the West Coast in terms of your focus? No, no, just San Francisco Bay Area, and and I've placed some people in Seattle. All right, then you were you were well branded, awesome. Yes, not not L.A. You know, I get calls from candidates that are in L.A. and San Diego, but I just don't have any uh, connections to companies in that area. What are you seeing in terms of organizational structure changes today? Are you getting uh, a view into that as you're hiring these leaders and what they're looking for? Some new roles that are maybe didn't exist uh, a few years ago? I wouldn't say, well, you know, the marketing ops piece, you know, if you want to go back, you know, seven, seven years, six years, you know, the big one is the demand generation roles. I was just looking this morning just to see. I put on went on LinkedIn like I was looking for a job. And I went in for job search, put director of demand generation, San Francisco Bay Area, yep. and there's fifty results. And that's that role is is the the role that is just it's it's the highest paid role on the marketing team. Um, some people know that, some don't. Um, I'll give you a quick example probably two years ago, got a call for a company wanted me to find them a senior director of demand gen, senior director of product marketing, senior director of corpcom. Mm-hmm. And then I said, okay, let's talk compensation. And she said, okay, let's start at the bottom. I, and I knew which one, but I wanted to hear it from her. And she goes, okay, corpcom gave me a number. I said, what's next? She goes, product marketing gave me a base range and bonus. I go, okay, what about demand gen? She goes, whatever. I go, what do you mean? Whatever? She goes, I will pay whatever it takes for that right person. Anybody and, listening to this, you know, driving right now, just, just pulled off the side of the road, right, and is looking at those oh, 50 positions that are posted right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, demand, yes, and good demand gen people can command um, minimum 175 base. And we're talking, again, Series B, Series C, individual contributor, maybe one direct report. You can command 
170, and I've placed people at 200 base plus bonus that can walk in and can say, in my last job, revenue was A, and now it's you know Z, and companies go, whoa, you know, come do that over here, and you know it, it, it costs, and that's why they're the, the highest on the uh, the ladder of uh, pay scales. And I, and I feel blessed that we work with some of the best and brightest on the planet. And, you know, we got started really early on. DemandGen did, you know, 10 plus years ago, almost 11 years now. So when we started, marketing automation systems were just coming in. There wasn't even MarTech in that day. And that role was uh, just emerging. And so I watched people go from that corpcom or from the traditional kind of art side of marketing into these demand generation roles, people who had a real passion for driving Revenue didn't want to just you know generate leads, but actually wanted to make a contribution to pipeline and revenue. And as you said, they can write their ticket. And you know, um, using the talent scout analogy before, they essentially have agents for them. You know, people like you that are looking out for that next killer role because you know that if you place someone at a company and they do well there and drive growth. Uh, they trust you, Michael, but they also, you know, um, got a tremendous amount of experience and they can take that experience and bring it to another company and do it all again. And there's a number of people that have done that, I would say two or three times over the last 10 years, you know, that two to three year stint at a, at a company and making a, a massive contribution and going and, and doing it again. I want to talk about, we, we hit compensation and if I left anything off, certainly come back to that. Um, when should someone use a recruiter? So for people uh, that are listening in, right, I think some people, most people have probably interacted with a recruiter, but when when should you, in your career, work with a recruiter and then ongoing? So some advice that you have there. Well, I think you should always, as a candidate, have um, a recruiter who you can go to for advice. I mean, I get people reach out to me for advice on roles I have nothing to do with. They're interviewing with a company and they'll just want my two cents on the company. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll ha- have an offer. I had someone call me yesterday that got an offer and wanted to see what I thought of it. So you should always have somebody that you trust, you know, in your Rolodex, if you want to say, that, um, you know, if you're curious to see what's out there, you call them up. You trust them to give you advice on the next move, um, again, or if you're interviewing with a company, especially a small company that, you know, if you don't know people that work there, um, it's unfortunate, but it happens. Uh, companies, their job is to bring you on board, and sometimes uh, they're really not forthcoming on all the information yeah. that they're giving you is true, like revenue and companies and and some people, it's too late, and they get in there, and they find out that, you know, some of the numbers were fudged a bit. Right. Um, so I always, and then, uh, like I said, I have lots of people that just reach out to me just to see what's what's out there. They're not aggressively looking, but it's good to have someone to uh, to reach out to. A number of my clients that have become, you know, 
I call them friends of mine because we don't just talk about work, but we you know keep an eye out for each other in terms of career paths and, and opportunities. Um, I've been able to connect them with some attorneys and get them some employment agreements that they never would have thought of crafting into their uh, their packages and have been, uh, you know, just they've come back to me and said, Dave, thank you so much for doing that because the company went public and had I not done X and Y this way, um, you know, bigger changes to their taxes and, and other things. Do you Do you provide coaching in terms of those compensation packages and agreements as well, or do you often team them up with an attorney when that's needed? No, no, no. It's it's just what I mentioned is is just I give them my knowledge if someone is getting an offer. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's some that are way below market, and I'm like, nope, that's you know that's way too low, and or on the option side, you know, some people are curious is what should the percent be at a series A, series B? And if some people, you know, if they haven't been through it or they don't have, you know, a mentor, which I'm huge on that, you know, if if you want to talk about, um, you know, why choose a company or career paths, I've always been huge on that. You need a mentor. You need your go-to person. Um, And so you need someone like that. And if you don't have anybody, I mean, how do you know if it's a, a good offer. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you know Gary Vaynerchuk, and I don't know if anyone listening in follows Gary V, the Gary V Audio Experience. He did an episode not too long ago, and he was like, um, I think he was on a panel, and he said, he, he tossed out the whole idea of having a mentor, and I couldn't have disagreed more with his advice, and I know he has a lot of millennials that, that tune into his program, and I just thought that was absolutely horrible advice. I think the point he was trying to make is, which is always, you know, work hard, get sweaty, um, you right. know, believe in yourself and, and be your own coach, but um, the lessons that you learn from people smarter than yourself that have been there, done that, crazy advice. So I think it's great that you offer that, that mentoring. Oh. Uh, Michael, yeah. it was crazy. I was and I was going to say that's that's what I tell people when they're thinking about accepting a job. You know, I'll ask them, okay, um, I I know the CMO. Do you think this is a person that's going to help you get to that next level? Yeah. And those are the big one of the biggest factors. I mean, when you look at, um, you know, John Miller again has you know, Maria's and Heidi's and all those people that, you know, I'm sure that they will tell you he helped me get to where I am. Yeah. And a lot of people that are CMOs now, when you ask them, they will tell you who helped them along the way. And, and, you know, some people choose companies. I'm a, my other big saying is, you know, chase companies, not money or title. And in the Bay area, there's a lot of people that, are chasing the wrong thing. Right. You know, everybody wants to be a VP or a CMO. Um, yes, it's super expensive in the Bay Area. So someone gets a call from a recruiter like myself for an extra thirty, forty thousand dollars in a salary, they'll make a jump. But the company's terrible. Yeah. It's not it's not it's not gonna help them get to where they want to be. No, and they, they rationalize it that, you know, I want to make this career bump, there's an opportunity, and they start selling themselves why it's a good company or why it's a great opportunity or why they should have that hellacious commute because of the title and the role. But then they end up leaving a year later because they're miserable, 
And did they really get the experience that they needed to prepare them for that role at the right company? And oftentimes that is, right. that's not the case. Right. I mean, I, I won't mention the name, but I had a, a candidate that was at two great companies and then he went to a, you know, just a company that's been around forever. They're just, they, they exist, but he got a VP title and he was all excited and I saw it on LinkedIn and, and I was like thinking to myself, okay, great. You know, you got a VP title, you know, and I pinged him about it and I just said, you know, just keep your eyes open yeah. because the company had tons of turnover. It was six months later, he went and took a senior director job at a great company. And he said, yeah, I should have listened to you. But he was chasing, you know, that VP title. He had to be a VP and here was his opportunity. But going to that company didn't add any value. Can we talk about how to interview, Michael? Because you touched on this earlier, which is what are the right questions to ask? I'm not saying how to prepare your answers. We could do a whole podcast certainly on that. And I think a lot of people tuning in um, are, are getting the doors open and getting um, the interviews. But since we're talking about landing at the wrong place, what are the questions that a candidate should ask to figure out if it's the right opportunity and company and environment? Well, LinkedIn is a great tool that people really, really should use to go through and find out. Like The best tool on there is to do a search and put past people that used to work at the company and just see how many were there and how many recently left and do all this due diligence to find out, you know, again, the company is going to tell you a story because they want you to join, but you just got to make sure that, that you really find out on your own, you know, why are these people leaving? And, and when you mentioned about things that I offer, I offer the same thing to uh, candidates that are interviewing at companies, if I know there's been turnover and I had a close friend inter interviewing at a company, I said, I want you to talk to the previous VP of marketing and the VP of Corpcom. And they will give you all the reasons why they left. And, I, and, and my thing for him was just making sure he had all the information before he made his decision. Why not learn from someone who's just been in the role? Right. Yeah. Right. And, and some people, again, get blindsided by the title. So they'll go in and, and they, they won't listen. They don't want to hear about the negatives because it's more money and it's a bigger title. Right. And they will go to that company. Yeah. And then, you know, six months, a year later when they're not there, they're, they will eventually admit that they, they made a mistake. Are there questions that you should you know, ask around equity and around investment that they've, that they've done. What are your thoughts there? Um, those are always kind of tough questions. Um, that usually happens when you're getting, yes, when you're getting close to the offer, um, that's when, you know, companies will say, okay, we'll give you 50,000 shares. And, and I've asked candidates that are at companies when we start talking and they say, I go, well, you know, where are we at currently now? And they say, well, this, this, and 50,000 shares. And I said, well, <clears throat> what percentage of that is the, com you know, the company? And they go, I don't uh -huh. know. They go, what? You know, and yeah. So some people say that is they got 70,000 shares and it's like, well, what does that mean? And, you know, 
Seventy of what? Right. So uh, yeah, I mean, early in my career, um, and and even before I started demand gen, certain roles, I would ask for the cap table. I would find out, right. you know, what the equity looked like for various folks in the organization because again, seventy thousand of what? It's a great, great point, and um, I do think people should ask at the right time and find out not just right. the number of shares, but what percent. I mean, you're becoming an owner in the company. And that goes back to kind of, you know, one of the earlier questions of, you know, that, that mentor, why should you have a, a you know, a recruiter friend yeah. or, you know, partner for, for that reason. There's a lot of candidates that, that just don't want to ask, you know, that's not their personality. They're like, everything sounds great. Whereas if you have someone to bounce it off, they can advise you. I have said this, I think it's on our website somewhere in our careers area. I find that interviewing is the weirdest freaking process. I mean, you are going to spend a third of your life for whatever period of time with the people that you work with, and you're going to make that decision after a few hours of interviewing, such a critical decision. I mean, you spend almost more time researching a mattress, you know, for a bed, and you spend a third of your time laying in that thing. So... Um, it's such an unnatural act. And I think the questions are really important, the questions to ask of the company, but also to ask of, of yourself. Um, let's talk about LinkedIn. You, you mentioned that earlier, and I, LinkedIn's a phenomenal tool for not only networking, but for learning about companies. Uh, what do you see happen sometimes when people are crafting their resumes and they've got their, they've got their online digital resume on LinkedIn, but they've got that paper resume. I'm curious if you've got some tips for whether those, whether those should be written differently and maybe what to look for if you're interviewing between those two. Well, first off, they should match. I mean, you'd be amazed how many people, you know, reach out to me and I look at their LinkedIn profile and they have dates and titles, jobs, and then they send me the resume and the titles are different and the dates are different. And I, and I tell them, I go, usually the first thing someone does will look at your LinkedIn profile to find out, are there any common connections? Is there any crossovers? Did somebody who I've worked with in the past give you an endorsement? You know, things like that. And if your resume says, you know, director of demand gen and your LinkedIn profile says, you know, senior director or VP, you know, you're trying to pump up the title on mm-hmm. LinkedIn. You know, those are things that just put question marks. Oh, yeah. On people. So, yeah, I mean, I've had over the years many people that I'll look at it and just go, you know, you need to, the, why, why do you have September as a start date on LinkedIn, but you have a different month on your resume? Which one, in your experience, is more the system of record? Which one do you find is typically more accurate? Well, I believe the resume. I mean, if that's, that's what you're presenting to the company, um, that's, that should be the correct one, and it sh- but it should match. You can't, be, you can't have different dates and different titles, because it, then it starts, I call it the pink flag. It starts coming up, coming up the pole a bit to the red flag, and it just brings up, questions it's like okay if you're lying and kind of stretching the truth on this what else are you stretching the truth on and what about as i was saying before asking before the style of writing is is the the bullet points on what you have on linkedin the same set of bullet points that you have on your printed resume should those be any different 
Um, it can. Some people um, have a few on their LinkedIn. Some people have it matches identical to the resume. Um, you know, your your roles in the last six years should have a lot of info. You know, people that have been in the business for 20 years, you know, when you started off in your first couple of jobs, you, you know, I always tell people you don't need to have, you know, four or five bullets of something you did, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but on the, the marketing resumes, my big push to people is it needs to look like a sales resume. And what I mean by that is results. Um, you don't just mention that, you know, you implemented Marketo, you work with Salesforce, um, you run pro it's like, give me some results, you know, what, what were the increase in revenue, you know? Talk about a, a big deal that you help close. It should, it should, since you're driving revenue, it should reflect like a sales resume. Yeah, there's if you're interviewing with the C-level executive team and you're no doubt going to interview with sales, the more your resume reads as a set of accomplishments of what you're able to do for the organization, the more attractive you are. Um, in that, as opposed to someone who's been responsible for corporate messaging and branding, I mean, you might want to call those um, that expertise out in a way, certainly. But you're right; impact um, goes goes a long way. Um, right, right. Can we talk about how to quit? I know that's a weird topic mm-hmm. for um, asking a recruiter, but it's it. You know, you have your pet peeves, right? Which is make sure your LinkedIn resume matches your uh, printed resume. It sounds like. Mine is just people don't know how to quit. And because our ecosystem is so incredibly small and everybody knows everyone or everyone's going to get to know everyone, at least in the inner circle of top talent, um, people really screw this up. What what thoughts, advice do you have around leaving one environment before you head to the other? Well, the biggest one I have is if you have made your decision to leave, and then you give notice. And again, if you're a, a good performer, they're not going to want you to leave. And so they're going to try to convince you to stay. Um, my advice is that never works. Never. Because now you've let them know you wanted to leave. And again, over the years, I've had it happen that I've warned people. I had one, one person was uh, running demand gen at a company. I had him interview at another company for a similar role a little bit more money. He, he took, took the role, accepted, signed, start date, and he went to give notice, and I talked to him before. I said, so here's what's going to happen when you give notice. They're going to offer you this dollar amount. They're going to give you a VP of demand gen title. He goes, no, they wouldn't. I said, yes, they're not going to just let you leave. So be prepared for that. And he goes, well, you know, I, I'm not doing this. I'm not taking this other role for a title. And I'm like, okay. So calls me the next day, and, and I'm like, what's up? And he goes, you're not going to like this. I go, what? He goes, well, they did exactly what you said. And I said, I told you they would. And he goes, I'm going to stay. Mm. And I was like, okay, fine. I said, but now they know that, that you were out the door. Six months later, I get a call from him that they hired someone in a – they had an office in another state. They hired a – uh, director demand gen at another state, probably for you know fifty thousand dollars less on the on the base, and decided 
to have that person run demand gen and transitioned him out. When you say it never works, I've got, as you, the data to back it up. Having run demand gen for almost 11 years now, there is not an employee that ever resigned that is still here to this day. And I would say the exceptions to people staying have been maybe once or twice. And like I said, they're no longer here. Um, It never works. You label yourself as I'm no longer a member of this team or I'm a flight risk. And if they talk to you into staying, that may be for selfish reasons. Like they're not ready for you to leave because of the roof that is going to collapse on them. But it's much less about, at that point, them feeling like they can turn your emotions and thoughts around to become a loyal uh, employee. It's, it's, yeah, if you're going to quit, yeah. quit. And, quit. And, right. and, do it, and do it gracefully. Um, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Authentically. I mean, you just worked at that company for X number of years. The best place to start is thanking them for that journey and for that experience and leaving that door not just wide open, but like, you know, stay in communication and relationships with the people that you have worked with because you're going to work with them again or you're going to cross paths with them again. And for some reason, people um, quit in a way and like they're breaking up with a spouse and think that it has to go really ugly and really nasty. It should actually be a high point of your career journey with them uh, if you do it well and do it right and do it professionally at the at the right time and don't put that company uh, at risk. So that that's that's my two cents. Yeah, and I was going to say, as soon as you know you decide to say, okay, I'll stay, and you walk out the door, you know, the next thing that person's doing is, you know, okay, let's look for this pl- person's replacement. Yep. You know, because now they're in the power position as they can take their time to find the right person who really wants to be there. Yeah. And you have no, you, you know, you left thinking, okay, um, I'll stay. And, but that's not really what's happening behind the scenes. And so you want to leave on good terms because yes, the Bay area is so small that uh, I know people that have left on great terms that have gone to another company two years later, they're invited back, yeah. for, you know, a bigger role because you know, everything was left fine. Or that CEO or CMO goes to another company two years later, you know, there's an opportunity to work for that person again, and you left on great terms, and boom, there you go. We had someone start at our company uh, this week that uh, was a member of our team. She left uh, for good reasons um, at that point, but really she left the door wide open, and she came back. She started this week and had a three-year gap in between there. And I stayed in touch with her and, you know, really valued her contributions and really respected her reason for leaving. It was nothing about our company and everything about what she needed to do at that stage of, of her life and welcomed her back with, with open arms. In fact, I checked in on her uh, every year just to see how she was doing. I, I check in on most of our employees that have left, uh, all of our employees that have left that I genuinely want to make sure they continue to do well in their career. Um, but I like to see where people go and what they do. Um, let's talk about tenure in marketing, which is, um, you know, the CMOs and other marketing leaders have kind of gotten branded uh, in the past, probably based on data, of their tenure, their time. What are you seeing in terms of tenure of, of senior marketing leadership these days? Yeah, it's, um, again, it's, it's similar to, you know, again, it's revenue. So it's similar to VP of sales roles. You know, you get VP of sales that come in and their job is to drive revenue. Um, if they're not hitting their numbers, their team's not hitting their numbers, um, 
what happens? They get let go. And so marketing is so close to revenue again that when these numbers aren't hit, you know, they're looking at sales and they're looking at marketing. And then that's when we sometimes have that bad relationship between sales and marketing and sales is blaming marketing, marketing is blaming sales. And, you know, sometimes the uh, person running marketing, you know, gets uh, the exit. When, um, when people don't stay for a long period of time, they come in and they leave, what do you see as the main contributors? I'm certain that when you work with folks and place them, you have a high degree of certainty that the, the, the talent that you're representing, you know, you're, you're placing top talent. You're, you're placing people right. who you're putting your brand to. So when you find it doesn't work out, what are the you know, top contributors to that? Um, thank God it hasn't happened a lot, but when it doesn't, it's, um, what you said earlier is it just, you know, everybody during the interview process was on their best behavior. And then once they get in to the working environment, um, people change, be it the person I'm reporting to all of a sudden something goes sideways and I see a side of that person that I didn't think that person had yeah. or vice versa. Um, and that's the, the one thing I always hear is, you know, the classic, it was a bad cultural fit, yeah. be it from the candidate side or from the company side. And that's why I always advise is because everybody, you have an interview in the office setting. Again, everybody's on their best behavior. I always say, you know, go out to lunch, just get out of the office and just go meet in a casual setting and, and try just to really you know, get different um, sides of this person instead of inside the company walls of interviewing in a conference room. I'll give you two secrets. Um, now they're not secrets anymore because there's thousands of people <laughs> listening to this podcast that will know this. But hey, kudos to you if you listen to it and you want some interviewing tips at Demand Gen. So people who interview with me, one of the things that I do is since we use marketing automation is I send them an email uh, with a click through to the site. So I cookie them and know who they are. And I look at their digital body language to see exactly how engaged they are uh, in the company. And so if I'm going to interview with someone, you can be sure that I've, I've put out that trap at some point because I want to truly see how engaged you are with the company and what content of ours that you're looking at. So that's one of the things. And I've done that. Um, I've done that throughout my career since there's ever been marketing automation. So I never hired someone uh, when I ran marketing to the marketing department without doing the same type of thing. Second thing that some of us do here, because you talked about going out, uh, and we will do this with our salespeople uh, and some others. Tip I got from Sharon Cormendi. So Sharon, if you're listening, thank you for this tip years ago, is um, we uh, have the waiter uh, or waitress uh, screw up their order intentionally mm -hmm. and see how they react in that environment, how they treat a server. Um, because of our core values and company culture, we want to see how people treat other people that are not interviewing them. And it's it's a really interesting experience to watch that right. happen. Right. The other other thing I I still to this day, you know, send reminders to my candidates after interviewing is send follow up thank you oh my God, for your yeah. time email. And I've had people that, um, you know, I'll just assume they're a senior person and they'll, they will send a follow-up and then I'll talk to the CEO the next day and goes, interesting, you know, I didn't, no, no one 
on the executive team got a follow-up email. It's like, what? You know, and some people understand it. Some people think I don't need to do it, but um, that's one of my... It's uh, on our scorecard. To your point, Michael, it's on our scorecard. If you do not send... We do two things, which I'll I'll share. Um, One is just that. If you do not send a thank you email to every single person that you interviewed with or a thank you card, either one counts, you lose points. And um, it's very interesting to see sometimes who they leave off, uh, especially when it's the head of HR. Bad move because he or she uh, is going to speak very loudly in terms of, oh, so you sent one to this senior executive, but you didn't feel it was, you know, card worthy or note worthy to these other folks. So we look for that. Um, that, And and that's that's a big one. The other thing is bring printed copies of your resume, because even though hopefully the HR person or whoever's driving the interviewing process has provided digital copies to the people that you're interviewing with, don't trust that they had a chance to take a look at that and read it and review it prior. And it may seem so old school to some to bring a printed copy to the interview, but it's certainly um, you know helpful at times for people that you're interviewing with, That especially if you're interviewing a lot of candidates. They can't keep everybody sorted out in their mind of who did what and where you were. So it's a great reference tool as you're walking them through your background and, and accomplishments. Any other thoughts in, in the interview? Process. I was going to mention that because that's you, you want to separate yourself from the others. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of people just walk in and assume that you know who they are, you know their background. But yes, when you present your resume, um, when you again send that follow up, and not just, you know, a basic thank you for taking the time, but, you know, what you learned from the interview, uh, why, you know, you're interested and why you're a good fit. Because at the end of the day, Companies want to hire people that want to be there. Yeah. And that's, you know, I've had that happen. Some companies go, wow, everybody loved, you know, Debbie, but we just didn't feel that she was excited about it, the opportunity in the company. And I'll talk to Debbie. She's like, well, yeah, everything seemed great. I go, well, you know, you need to let them know more because they're not feeling it. No, that is such a good point. It seems so obvious, but having interviewed hundreds of people in my career, it's not surprising anymore that people act like this is just a day in the life for some of them. And I don't know if they're intimidated to show that level of enthusiasm, but the people who really let you know, A, that they want to be part of your team, and B, why they want to be part of your team, the more confident the interviewers feel that they're making the right decision. And when that decision is left up to them because either they can't tell or they don't know, or maybe they're actually getting vibes like it's not that exciting or interesting to them um, that really works against you. Great, great, yeah. great tip. Yeah, and it's, the other thing is it's a, there's a fine line from being, um, you know, over-anxious if you, you know, trying to sell yourself too hard. So some people are afraid if they had a bad experience on a, on a previous interview that they went that way and the feedback was that they, they came across too needy or, or you know, whereas... It's that you got to give them enough, but not too much of, you know, I want this, I want this role. So it's, it is a, a little dance that you need to kind of do correctly. Yeah. Well, you know, I uh, have several times had the experience where I've reached out to somebody or had a initial conversation of them reaching out to me. And I don't want to say compensation comes up quickly. It comes up in minutes. And at that point, I'm completely turned off. 
and right. the conversation's done. Even though it might go on for a little bit longer, it's it's done. And there is a time to ask about compensation. But um, I'd almost want to name some people in this episode that have just been <laughs> horrible at this. Like you would have had a job here potentially, except you blew it at the very first minutes of the conversation. Um, and just, I don't know where that comes from, but just maybe that's immaturity or maybe that's, they're not looking to make a change. And if, to your point earlier, like if the money's enough, maybe they'll make a change. I don't know. Right. And this again goes back to the mentor. I mean, it's just whoever they've listened to, you know, someone told them, Hey, you know, go in and ask for this. It worked for me. You know, and it's just like you're, sometimes you're listening to the wrong person. Yeah. Anything we're not talking about, Michael? I mean, you are the expert. Uh, you are the man who has placed so much talent at so many companies. I feel very blessed over, the, especially the last several years, that so many people reach out to me for career advice. I encourage them to to do that. Um, my clients regularly are asking us, "Hey, do you have someone for this role and this role?" And I've often thought, "God, we should we should open up a talent practice at Demand Gen yeah. because we're not only building great talent, but um, we certainly know who the best folks are." So, what about what about you? Any other things that tips, tricks, things we didn't you know don't do's that we didn't cover today? Well, again, the main thing is when you're interviewing, do your due diligence. That's, I mean, that's my biggest thing is... Unpack that a little bit. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, just making sure, making sure that if you hear about an opportunity at a company, if if, uh, another recruiter reaches out to you about a company and they're selling and how great things are, is take a big step back and, you know, take the call, take the first interview, but really... Take your time. Talk to people that used to work there. Find a way to get connected to those people. Um, you know, find out culturally, because that's the biggest thing is, is this the right spot for me? And, and I always have those conversations when, even with a candidate, if, I'm, if I have an offer from a company and they have an offer from another company and they're talking money and time, I go, hold on. Take the money off the table. Take the title off the table. Where do you want to work? That should be the most important thing we should mm-hmm. be talking about. Not this is a senior director title and this pace is this and the bonus is this and the options are this. I mean, at the end of the day, where do you want to work? And I'll share a quick story. I had this happen with a CMO I placed a few years ago that was on the fence. The company really wanted him, but he was you know, going to stay where he was. And we were having lunch in the city. And I just asked him, I said, let me ask you a question. So when you get up in the morning and you're looking in the mirror and you're shaving and you're getting ready to go to work, do you want to go to work? And he started laughing. He goes, you sound like my wife. And I said, well, what's the answer? You know, and he goes, well, yeah, no, I'm not that happy there. I said, well, there you go. This is, if you're not happy where you are, make a change. And I think that's the most, the most important thing is, is a lot of people are afraid, you know, uh, to make a move. So they stick at companies that are going down and they just go for the whole ride down, yeah. whereas other people see it and have confidence in themselves that, hey, you know, I'm an A player. There's, you know, like I said, there's 50 demand generals out there. Why, why am I staying at this company that's going down quickly? Uh, that's great advice, and you know, for those that are listening in, if you if this is helping you, go back and listen to the episode a few episodes ago with Sam Melnick, who's a VP of Marketing at Alacadia, because we talk about career paths and you know how to how to have the career that you want. And 
we talked about happiness in that as well, Michael, and it's so important. Um, we didn't talk about this earlier, but you know, the culture of the company plays a huge role. We did talk about that, but what is the culture between sales and marketing? Because we're talking about marketing roles. I have seen people tragically fail, and I don't mean that they failed because they didn't have the capability, but they ended up failing at the company and leaving because they went to a company that is a completely sales-driven culture with no interest, no desire, and never going to happen and change. They did not see marketing as anything more than an arts and crafts department and trivialized the role that marketing plays. And I, I'm thinking of someone right now who I bet is listening to the program. I'm going to say a little bit more. You're in Atlanta, and we <laughs> met at a Starbucks, and I gave you some advice, and I'm like, if it doesn't change, think about you changing where you're at because you've got to be happy and life is too short. You've had some life, um, almost life-altering experiences, Michael, and, and you know happiness matters most. Correct, correct. Life's too short. It is. Well, I'm glad you made it through that time to uh, be here with me today. And I want to thank you for all of your advice and contributions to everyone. If people are not working with a recruiter or not working with you, Michael, where's the best place to get in touch with you so you can provide some of that mentoring and coaching? And boy, if you're early in your career and you don't know this, um, it doesn't cost you to work with a recruiter. Just the opposite. The company that... uh, the company that hires you is the one who invests in your coach, in your agent, your talent agent, in your Michael King. So uh, reach out to Michael. Where's the best place to do that? Uh, LinkedIn's the best. Just go to LinkedIn, pull me up, uh, Michael King at King Recruiting. Uh, send me an invite, send me an email. We can get in touch that way and then exchange uh, email. Or if you want to look at some of the companies I've worked with in the roles, you can go to my website, which is kingrecruiting.net give you more of a, uh, an idea of, uh, again, types of roles and types of companies that I work with. Awesome. Well, I hope people do. Um, we'll keep in touch. I know that there's continually a set of opportunities that I'm trying to find some great talent to land into. I just did a post on LinkedIn the other day, uh, which we can talk when we go off air, about um, who's looking for a rock star VP of marketing slash demand generation, often that unicorn these days, right? The person who can not only help with the branding and marketing strategy and programs, but also be uh, a chief marketing technologist. And so those roles in smaller companies, yeah, you can you can put that on one person, but in larger companies, those are now separate roles these days, as you know. Well, thank you, Michael. Right. Really appreciate having you. Thanks for your time. I know we went long format today, but uh, really appreciate your advice, and I hope everybody does uh, as well. So thank you. Thanks, Dave. You bet. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Demand Gen Radio. Thanks, everybody, always for tuning in. Uh, I know there's a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, If you see me, do love to hear how you are enjoying the program. If there's any suggestions for people that you'd like to have on the program, I'm always open to that. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up and say, see you on the next episode. Take care. You've been listening to Demand Gen Radio, bringing you the top industry experts, thought leaders, authors, marketing technology firms, and senior marketing leaders from around the world to teach you the methods and technologies for high-performance marketing.